Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today we have Lance Peter- Peters. Let me do it again. Sorry. It's, okay. if I, it's in my head now, so I'll do it. Yeah. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today we have Lance Peterson. Lance is the founder and managing partner of Verifest, an end-to-end real estate investment platform designed to bring transparency and trust to middle market investing. So thank you so much for being on the show, Lance. No, thanks for having me, Charles. I appreciate it. So what was your background prior to starting your current business? Yeah, so my, my background, I've really been an entrepreneur pretty much my whole life. I mean, my, my parents were business owners and you know, I didn't really know anything different. So I, I moved from North Dakota out to Oregon when I was 20. I worked for someone else for a short period of time, realized that that didn't work for me. So I started... Um, started my own business. So it was an IT services company for uh, small to medium sized businesses. So we basically were like their virtual IT department and uh, grew that from nothing to just over 5 million in revenue and sold it, you know, seven years later. So that was sort of what I was doing before I got into this, you know, the, the real estate investing side of things. Awesome. So tell us about your company Verifest, what you guys do and uh, why you started it. Sure. So Verivest is really an accidental business. Um, my business partner and I are that our business before we were commercial hard money lenders and uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And we in in 2011, we we decided to sort of pivot the business and become, you know, more you know, private equity real estate investors. So rather than, you know, kind of up and down coming off the global financial crisis, you know, it was just harder to find loans that we were willing to do. Mm-hmm. And so we decided, hey, you know, markets go up and markets go down. We'd much rather sort of, you know, invest into things that are favorable given where the market's at, right? Lending's fine. And we we still do some lending to this day. But so we ended up opening up a, an open-ended fund that had a much broader mandate. So we could invest in funds, syndications, Mm -hmm. we could do loans, we could do whatever. Well, what what ended up happening was that we learned pretty quick that the reporting quality was pretty low for most of the guys we were investing with, which which presented a problem at our fund level, because if we couldn't get good financials from them, you know, it would really be difficult for us to, to kind of report out to our investors. And we also had an advisory practice at the time where we helped real estate entrepreneurs, architect pooled investment vehicles. Mm -hmm which was sort of for us a bit of a due diligence exercise. We get to know people, help them structure and learn about their business. And then maybe we'd invest with them. Well, between those two things, we realized that, hey, once we got to the other end of it, they didn't have the capacity or capability to administer mm-hmm. their, the funds on their own. The reporting was no good. So we basically took an internal department that was doing our fund administration and accounting and made it an external facing division. So we started offering that as a service to our, to our clients um, sort of as a means to an end. Well, it, it turned out that that was a you know huge need in the market and uh, really took off in along with sort of our investing business as well. So 
we spun it out as its own company in 2017 and uh, we rebranded it to Veravest here uh, in 2020. So it's been, so we've really been at it now for, you know, eight, eight years, I guess, um, with, with this, uh, the Veravest business. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's a, it's definitely a unique business model. And um, I, I've definitely seen the problem with, with us, with syndications and with some of our strategic partners that we work with. And it's just very difficult sometimes to, just updating information and everything that goes along with it, like really simple stuff is very difficult if you don't have the correct backend for it. And so it's, it's kind of imperative in today's day and age to have that um, for your investors. And especially if you're working with more, I guess you would consider how you guys were with a fund, more of an institutional investor where you might require more reporting than your mom and pop investor, right? That's investing $50,000 into a, uh, a syndication. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, exactly. The more sophisticated investors are, then their requirements, you know, are greater. And, and uh, yeah, hence why we had to kind of solve the problem for ourselves. But, um, but yeah, there's a lot of, and so I think for me, that's, I've, I've grown and developed the passion for this of what I just call like removing friction. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I just feel like all of it could be better than it is. And um, so that's where, you know, I'm always just trying to make it. So how, how can we more efficiently capitalize, you know, high quality deal flow, right? Mm-hmm. Like how do we just make all these things easier and, and less costly and efficient? Because at the end of the day, you know, you've got, especially in sort of what I call the middle market real estate space, it's predominantly highly fragmented on both sides, right? So the deal sponsors, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of, you know, there's just there's all over the place, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and then on the other side, the most appropriate investor really is more of your high net worth, maybe small, you know, private equity, real estate shops. I mean, it, it's not, they're not institutional investors, right? And so you have high fragmentation on both sides of the market. Um, and, you know, that, that's what makes it a challenge is that, that, you know, to get a deal done, I mean, a $10 million equity raise for a deal is a, is a big deal for like a syndicator, but that's like a, that's a rounding error. It's a, that's a tiny deal for an institutional investor. I mean, it's untouchable. They can't, they can't do $10 million deals. You know, they just, so I think that for me, that's really where I spend most of my effort and energy is just trying to solve some of those problems and friction along the way. Hence why we've really made Veravest more of this end to end, you know, solution now where, you know, we, we, we take those highly fragmented investors on the one side, you know, provide a place for them to discover deal sponsors, um, whether they're developers or they're, you know, commercial real estate operators or they're lenders or whatever they might be, help them be discovered, you know, validate and verify the information that those operators, um, you know, are, are providing and then, and then handle a bunch of those back office administration things all the way through to we launched the tax practice last year. So oh. just trying to make it to where it's, it's really an end to end ecosystem is uh is what i i spend most of my days working on nice well you you mentioned the reporting which we know is a huge issue what other issues are you finding i've, I've heard another normal thing i hear is communication between gps yeah. and lps what trust issues are normally found between investors and sponsors because i know you went through in your you know that's one of your parts of your platform yeah yeah, I think one of the pieces of friction, right, is is the, you know, who who can you trust, right? And so, you know, part of the due diligence process, right, is ultimately, 
hey, great, you've got this, you've tied up this, you know, 300 unit multifamily deal. But if I don't, if I've never heard of you before, or, you know, and you're, this deal's in a different state than I'm in, or whatever the case may be, you know, step one is figuring out like what you're all about. So what, so because we've been doing this, one of the things we learned was that the whole upfront due diligence process is sort of a pain for everybody, even for, you know, more of your private equity real estate funds. The issue is that you got all these guys banging on your door asking to, you know, to do programmatic capital arrangements and fund my deals and, you know, but the, the process you have to go through, the due diligence process, the cost and the time and all those things is, mm-hmm. is difficult, right? You need to run background checks, you need to verify the track record, you know, you need to get to know these guys, understand their deals. And so what ends up happening is that it's easier just to say no, right? I mean, you see it a big time in the, you know, and people always complain about why don't investment advisors allocate more capital to the you know, real estate sector, but it, the reputation risk is too high, Right. So if I'm managing some, you know, a bunch of investors money and you come to me with your your new multifamily, you know, value add real estate fund and asking to, you know, to recommend my investors invest in this deal. It's like, hey, you guys seem like you're legit. But I mean, if I invest in you and it turns out to be some Ponzi scheme or you guys end up, you know, just you don't know how to execute and whatever. I mean, then it looks bad on me. If I if I put my client's money in Google or Facebook or something like that, and something happens and, the, and it goes down, it's like, hey, I'm just, I mean, a bunch of people lost money, right? Like they're not gonna hold it against me. And I think for your more just accredited investor, I mean, they, they don't have the time or the wherewithal of the inclination to, to really do what they wanna do. And I think that with, on the Verivest side, part of us in the rebrand, that was a big piece of it is that I kept getting these phone calls from investors that were invested in our clients saying, hey, I've invested with X, Y, and Z that are clients of yours. Can you just send me your client list? Because I really like the idea of having some independent third party doing Mm -hmm. all the administration. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the first time it happened, I was kind of like, that's a really odd request. I mean, I understand what you're you're saying. And then like a week and a half later, it happened again. Then two weeks after that, it happened again. I'm like, I see what's going on. They've kind of ran through the, the crowdfunding stuff and they realize like there's not much not many options for real estate crowdfunding and they're trying to find more people that have got deals. And so I dug a little deeper and I'm like, okay, so what's your process? Like, what are you looking for and how do you do it? And, and one of the things that kept popping up was they're like, man, I wish I could run like a background check, you know, was one of the big ones. Like it'd just be great. But they're like, it's kind of awkward, right? Because I hear I am only going to invest like 50 grand or a hundred grand and I'm asking them to run a background check. It's kind of weird. And then they're like, you know, the other thing that's really hard for me is that they give me these track records that look all pretty and they've done all these great things, but they're like, I have no idea if they're just making this crap up or not. Like, I just, I don't know what to believe. So therefore I just assume that, you know, like it's just, it's just odd. Right. So when I started to put it all together, I'm like, oh my gosh, like we're in a perfect position. We're already sort of this independent party in the equation. We could just run a background check on on the sponsors up front and then annually we could verify their track record you know and do it once and and then just have it done so instead of like every investor having to try to reinvent the wheel which is time wasting on the sponsor side as well as the investor side if they even can even get that done we'll just do it put it on their public profile and then basically you know you've got a living track record from a sponsor standpoint and then it also had the benefit of sort of giving the assurance to the and user investors, the passive investors that that they need it, right? They can sleep yeah. well at night, and then adding the 
the sort of ongoing oversight, what we call monitoring, that sort of sealed the deal. It's like, okay, the assurance of you're not invested in a Ponzi scheme because someone that knows what they're doing is watching closely as to where all the money goes in the deal, whether it's a syndication or a fund, you know, they're not crooks and you know, whatever they've claims they've made are legit. Um, that sort of checks those boxes. I think that high level due diligence. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the background check, I can definitely see how that could be a uh, gray area. That was one reason I got my real estate license. I've never used it in Florida per se, but um, it shows you you've been checked out by state, federal, and back in, you know, FBI and all that stuff. And uh, it's just because you're supposed to do it. It's like if you read any vetting of syndication ebook, right, or any type of paperwork, it's the first thing you're supposed to do is check backgrounds. And um, like you said, $50,000, someone might not be. Not, might not be inclined to ask for that, right? Whereas you have uh, larger investors that it's a normal thing that they ask for. So, but um, it's interesting what you say about people losing money because I have a, a financial advisor friend and he would tell me that he'd have new clients that come in and, uh, you know, guys that have gone through graduate school and everything like this uh, and professionals. And uh, he would say that it's kind of weird and eerie how many times they've lost money investing with friends. And, um, like the same thing, like the country club, they're the country club, they're investing and someone says, I want to buy an apartment building or something else. And they've gotten burned on those deals. And whether it was a Ponzi scheme or whether it was just terrible management, um, it's just, it's uh, a lot of people, uh, no matter what your education level have been burnt on it. And even if there was really uh, the sponsor's first goal, it wasn't to take their money. It probably just was mismanaged on it. But it's one of those things where you can't really verify that. And people get, you know, they get uh, really scarred from that. And they're like, you know what? I, I just want to stay with stuff that we can verify. Yeah, you, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's just it. It's like, you know, mismanagement off, often leads to sort of misappropriation of funds, right? So when a deal's mm -hmm. burning down, you know, I think that's just it, the opaque nature of what's going on. And then I also think too, is that the fact that there's no public accountability, right? So yeah, you do the country club deal. That guy's like, okay, I had 15 investors in this deal. He's like, I'll just stop going to that club. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, there's a bunch of other victims. I mean, it sounds weird, but it's yeah. kind of how it goes, right? Like, and then, you know, victims of these deals of just investing in something that's completely imploded. It's not like those guys, there's the shame that comes along with it, yeah. right? Of like, am I going to go run around and sort of talk about how I made this stupid investment and that I lost a bunch of money on? Probably not. And then that other guy's just going to avoid you and you'll avoid each other. And it was a bad experience. Whereas I think what we're doing, right, is that I call it transparency, but it's, it's also it's, it's accountability, right? Because if you decide to, you know, undergo the background check, get, you know, become verified member of our network and, and hang the shingle and basically make the public proclamation that, hey, we do things above board and, and we're willing to be transparent, which means share the good results and the bad results, mm -hmm. right? Because once you do it, and that, I, I feel like it's a forcing function. When you wake up in the morning, you say, this deal's not going the way that I want it to go. It's not just those 15 investors in the deal. You, you now, you're going to have to own that, right? Like that's going to go on your track record or you're going to disappear off the platform and people are like, why'd you, why'd you decide to do it? And then you bolt it and you're not up there anymore, yeah. right? And I think that it just, it's, I mean, I, maybe you felt it too when you get some of these, these more professional designations, but I know when I became a, a registered rep, um, you know, and passed my series seven and 63. And, you know, the day after I passed that test, just things felt different. Like I felt like there was this, it, it just, everything you do is sort of like, you got to be more careful because now 
I don't want to get my hand slapped by FINRA or, or whatever the case may be. It's like, you really got to think harder about what you're doing. And I think it's a good thing. And so it's just being publicly accountable to stuff. And you see it, like if you tell, if I go tell every, you know, everyone on LinkedIn or Facebook that I'm going to go lose 15 pounds or something, you know, and it's like, it's like now they're going to hold me accountable. Like I've got to do it. And so I just think that the industry needs that. And, and first of all, there's a lot of people out there running around that are sort of making claims that are, they're fabricating claims. I mean, they're, they're claiming to have done things they never did. And I think there's a lot of people out there that are skimming or, you know, kind of misappropriating funds. It might not be huge Bernie Madoff like Ponzi schemes, but it might be sort of like, yeah, we're kind of just, you know, we're, you know, we're just sort of moving money from here to there and taking a little more than we're supposed to be taking. And no one's, no one's the wiser because they don't know what they're looking for. Yeah, definitely. And there's like, there's always SEC, uh, SEC investigations going on with people in, uh, you know, in the real estate syndication, multifamily, whatever it might be. And you hear about it here and there of um, how they got under it. You know what I mean? What happened, what they were doing. And um, I don't think, I mean, there's still, you know, I, I see them still doing deals and stuff like this. And it's, uh, you know, some of their investors probably don't even know that uh, they're looking at. And if it's good, I mean, if it's something that they are able to uh, rise above or if something that's going to bury them, uh, you don't really, it's something that the, your investors should be aware of. But um, what do you suggest for passive investors to mitigate their risk? Like, for instance, for myself, uh, I will never like risk more than 5% of my net worth in a single investment. So how do you tell investors uh, that come to you that are passive to kind of spread the risk? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think that my advice to most people is just, I mean, it's sort of like, first of all, only invest in things that you understand, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's sort of, you know, Warren Buffett 101, right? So mm -hmm. like, it, it's, it, it probably makes sense to do syndications before you invest in funds. As an example, there's just more complex things going on in a fund. As an, you know, it's just, mm -hmm. it's more complex, right? If you understand it, then that's fine. But if you don't, I think it's, that's why multifamily makes a lot of sense. I think you and I have talked about that before. It's just, it's just easier to get your mind wrapped around. You probably rented a house, you rented a house or rented an apartment or, you know, it just, it just makes sense. Um, and then, and then I, I do think, I mean, ultimately don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's sort of, you know, pretty much a no brainer as well, but just diversification and, and yeah, I mean, you just gotta be, it's exciting and it's great to, you know, have the potential for double digit returns, you know, and those sorts of things. But yeah. I mean, I'm not a guy who's saying like, go and divest of your entire, you know, stock portfolio or, or whatever, mm -hmm. right? Like you really need to think about, cause that's why I say like your portfolio has jobs that need to be done, right? You've got so much money. It's this investment portfolio. It has jobs that need to be done. It needs to generate some income. You need something that's going to have some growth, you know, you're going to need the different things and it's some defensiveness in the portfolio. So, and then given where you're at in your lifetime, you're like, you got to think about it that way. It's like, it's your money, it's your portfolio. What does it need to do? And therefore start there and then go and look at opportunities where you're going to allocate and what, what you need. Um, that's different for everybody. So it's just, that's kind of what I preach is just like, if you're going to do this, then you, you need to learn to become an investor right? Like, like just because it's passive doesn't mean that you're not paying attention. I think that that's where everyone's starting to wake up and realize that, you know, cause we made the transition from, you know, being pensioners 
you know, and then you had the, the 401k stuff sort of set in, but then we sort of abdicated that decision-making to financial advisors and wealth managers or whatever. And, you know, people didn't take it seriously enough that, that it's your money. Like you need to, you need to educate yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. And so now I think what we're seeing is this groundswell of people realizing like, oh my gosh, I'm behind or, you know, I, I need to take charge of this myself. And it really starts and ends with education. So, I mean, that's my big advice. Just like, you got to educate yourself and, and, and you got to do things that make sense to you and that you're comfortable with and you understand, yeah. uh, period. Yeah. yeah, it makes perfect sense. So what are the most important questions you feel every passive investor should be, uh, should be asking a deal sponsor before they're investing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know, when you're approaching a sponsor, I always feel like the magic, the magic that any deal sponsor has. So whether they're an allocator of capital or they're an acquisition guy or they're a developer or whatever. I mean, the number one thing that you're trying to figure out is that what is their conviction and what is it that, you know, how do they really create value? Like, what is it that they're doing that, because that's their superpower, right? Like how they generate and create value. So, Okay, great. So you're, you know, you're based in Detroit and you've got this bead on, I don't, you know, whatever, in a single family residences or whatever. It doesn't matter what it is, right? But it's like, if, if they don't bring something unique and special to the table, they don't have conviction about their strategy, you know, th that's the first, all your questions should center around that. Like, what is it that you do that's different, that makes you, that makes you unique um, in your own, in your own way? Because that's, that's that value creation thing. Because when you think about it, right, if, like, if, if you talk to a sponsor and they're, oh, I invest in multifamily everywhere. Like I'll buy any building anywhere in any city at any time, any place. It's kind of like, yeah, what are the chances you're going to be the dumb money? Like what is the chances that you're going to buy the, the apartment building on the wrong side of the tracks or whatever, right? Like okay. that's the stuff I think that in the real estate game, you know, you really need to dig into and, and figure out like, how do you guys do what you do? And that makes you different. And then who are the people that are going to execute the strategy, right? Like who's on the squad that's going to make that happen. I mean, it's a hell of a lot easier, as you know, to like go buy, you know, stabilized, you know, core assets, like multifamily that are, you know, 98% occupied. And, you yeah. know, I mean, like it doesn't take that much. I mean, a value add strategy, I'm thinking, okay, like what makes you qualified to execute you know, some value add strategy. I mean, it, it's a lot more moving parts and then a development or construction, like you better know what you're doing. If it's your first time, you're just going to develop some pro property or something. I mean, I'm, that's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, you, you're going to have to compensate me. I'm going to have to get paid a lot of money to, to, to get into that deal. Yeah. The other thing too, is I, I think that most syndicators out there uh, that have only been doing it or investors for the less than a decade, I feel that uh, it's just writing a lot of business plans. They might not tell their investors, but really it's a lot of returns are coming from just appreciation yeah. and the compressing of cap rates. And that's going to be something we're going to see the true operators that are going to come out uh, where when we have a little bit of a pullback and you're not able to raise rents in these you know, super hot markets, right? Uh, where they're buying and where they're just paying crazy amounts of money for and um, I guess that'll be very interesting to see who the true operators are and who are just riding off of uh, appreciation and then the hope that uh, in 12 or 24 months, they can sell the property 
to someone else after performing some some sort of uh, level of uh, value add to it. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's it's uh, you know, and, and I think that there were some guys out there who were just trans very transaction heavy on the run up, um, and they knew it. They they just they knew that that it had a lot of life in it, right? And they were just transacting like crazy, knowing that it's basically just ride the wave. Um, and, you know, now you're seeing those guys are basically sitting on the sidelines. So that's why I, I, I never, because I, I felt like on the run-up, a bunch of operators were sort of like, you know, turn their nose up at guys like that. I try not to be judgmental. It's like, okay, maybe they are being reckless in what they're doing, but especially if they're going, hey, get, you know, get it while the going's good. I mean, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, now in this, in this part of the market cycle, it's just that, that stuff doesn't work. And I, I think that that's what you see is that, and it, that's what it goes back to. It's like, how do you, how do you create value again? What is your method? What's your process? You know, what, what does your box look like? Like, how do you underwrite, you know, all those sorts of things are very, I mean, especially now, very, very, very important. Mm-hmm. And if people are just out there still using those same strategies of, you know what we do, we just put offers on every property under the sun. I'm like, okay, maybe that worked in like 2017, like a good strategy, that's not a good strategy anymore. Like that's, <laughs> that's scary stuff. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then uh, I was talking to a broker a couple hours ago and he was telling me that um, he, he's in Northern Florida and he was saying that um, he sold the property back in 2013 for like 22 a door and it's trading on the market now for 142 a door. And yeah. you're like, he's like, I just can't believe it. He's like, I look back on it. It sold for 80 a door. He's like, I thought that was crazy. Now it's at 142 a door. He's like, I just, he's like, I don't know what's going on. And it's the whole thing is that I guarantee the person buying it for 142 is, uh, doesn't have the same value add plan as the guy that bought it for 22, uh, several years ago. So it's just yeah, it's that's, completely that's, crazy. That's exactly right. And it's like, and that's just it, right. It's like with that asset, I mean, can, I mean, it, it would just be, it seemed like it's very difficult that there's even a value add strategy could be executed on that asset. Right. Like, and I think that that's, what's going to be hard for some people to get their minds wrapped around. It's just that there's no more room in it. Right. Like that there just isn't right. It, it just, it's not there. And, and, and that is the mistake that I, you just see people making, right. Is that they just, they want to believe that there's more room in these things. And that's where they violate what I feel like is, is rule number one. It's like, don't overpay um, for some, you know, for real estate. And, and they violate it because they just somehow, some way they get their own ego gets in the way and they feel like, Oh no, I can push rents another 50, 75, hundred bucks or whatever per door. And it's just like, no, you're not. And that's why I say it goes back just using common sense as a passive investor to say, okay, just put yourself in the shoes of that prospective tenant. Are you really going to pay, you know, thousand eleven hundred dollars for that freaking two-bedroom apartment when you can get the i mean some guy the other day was talking i'm like dude just look it up like like when someone brings you stuff just go and act like you're shopping for an apartment or you're looking for an apartment in that neighborhood right like that'll tell you it's like it's not that complicated and if you're going i would never pay that then you basically know that well if you're reasonable and rational then then why in the hell would some other rational human pay that for rent it doesn't make sense right so Pass. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, totally true. That's the first thing I look at in underwriting is rent predictions and what people are putting for rents. And I was talking to a broker a couple of days ago, and he was saying that he was penciling something out. It was like um, forty five, uh, like I guess it was like December of last year was forty five thousand a month coming in on one of these buildings, 
And uh, they penciled it the next month that for them after buying it would be like 62. And he's like, you can't just go write the market rent and like uh, as the day you buy it. I mean, you know, where are you getting a 30% increase in rent and going up in that type of rent? Uh, even if after, even if you do it over two years, you're losing every tenant that's in there. I mean, there's yeah, a huge that's, disruption. You, you uh, got it. That's, that's yeah. the other, and that's the other issue is like some of these markets. Now, if it's, if the market has a lot of depth to it, maybe me, I don't know. Once again, I, at, yeah. at this point, I don't think you can, but some of these people buy some of these assets or mobile home parks or whatever, and they don't understand that when they push the rents that way and everyone revolts, I mean, these are, these are like human beings who like live in these places and when they bind together and say, screw these guys, we're out of here. And where the, where's the next group of tenants coming from? Like, where are they going to come from? <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. I, I was living in a, a apartment complex years back that had a, that they were doing a value add on it, you know, and it went up like 15% one year. And uh, I was able to get it down the increase less, but the next year they did the same thing. I'm like, I'm out of here. Like you guys are raising your rent 15%, two years in a row. It's just like completely nuts. And uh, I just think that most people are uh, in the same mindset that are tenants that, and maybe people that are buying these properties or investing are have a mortgage and they forget their days of renting, but you know, you can only jack the rent so much. I mean, we hear all the time about income, not uh, increasing in the population with the people. And these are the people that are renting the apartments. It's not these people that uh, are owning all the stocks and owning all the equities that have been going crazy in the last year. So it's something that, um, I don't know, it's just a huge disconnect. And I don't, I think investors, just like you said, soon, simple apartments.com, Zillow, Craigslist review of a half hour will figure out um, if their rents are even in line. You know, if the projections, where they want to go in 12 months, I mean, if it's completely crazy from what's down the street right now, I mean, you know, you want the predictions of the rent being something that they're already renting a block away. And uh, so it's apples to apples and you kind of know what's going on. But um, I think that there's a huge disconnect, but um, yeah, I agree. so what is some easy to do it yourself due diligence that every passive investor is able to perform by themselves other than reviewing on your, uh, on your platform? What would you suggest if someone reached out to you? Yeah, great question. I mean, I things for me like that I would do straight away is is basically I want, and it goes back to the thing you mentioned, Charles was the communication piece. So I'm saying, send me, send me some of the communication you provided mm -hmm. to investors on past deals. Like I, I really want to see how you communicate. And then I mean, one of the things we have on our platform is also is sort of the, when, when did you, you know, send me like the cover page for the tax return um, for a couple of the deals, trying to see like, when are you getting the, the K1s out? right, is a thing I look for because it, it's, there's this whole thing, like a lot of times the, the sponsors and operators think that it's like the, the CPA's fault that they can't get their K-1s out on time, but usually it's because it's a total dumpster fire, you know, <laughs> on the on the financial statement side of things. It's just, you know, it's such a mess, right? And so that's right where I'd go is like, show me communication, show me reporting, show me what you have, that, that'll tell you a lot. Um, about the sponsor. And then, and then I think the other thing too, is like, give me a list of investor references and, and then actually call them. Right. And, and hmm. call and talk to existing investors. Cause the other thing that I found in doing that is that I always tell people like, give me your best investors. Like, I mean, I mean, I want like five, five people, hmm. give me your best ones. And when you call what they think are their best ones and they're basically like, yeah, they're okay. But you know, <laughs> like they would never hear from them and whatever, you know, I'm going, see, you didn't even, you didn't even take the time to prep the investor to let them know, like, 
I'm telling them these are the best investors. So I'm, I'm assuming you're going to say really nice things about me. Let's get this out of the way before I put your name on the list. They're skipping that step. Right. Yeah. So for me right there, I'm going, I, it just, that's the stuff that it's too, like I said, it's too nerve wracking, right. From an investor's position, especially when someone's actually like a value add play. I mean, like I said, core, whatever, something that's sleepy and just, you know, anyone could do it, but like anything that's got moving parts to it. Mm-hmm. If, if I, if, if it turns out that these guys are terrible at communicating with the investors, I'm sort of like, it just, life's too short, man. Like that's just, that's just too, too nerve wracking. Cause you never know what's really going on. Cause most sponsors, they think it's like, I'm, I'm crushing it, man. Like I'm delivering these returns. You should be thanking me, right? Like <laughs> I don't need to give you an update. It's like, I don't know. Yeah. I like to, I, I I've never had a, a negative passive investing experience, but um, I'm always hesitant when people are asking uh, me who I've invested with like passively for a reference, because I'm just like, you know what? It could be the next deal this guy invests into with this operator and uh, it goes bad. And you're like, uh, you know, I just was like, avoid the whole thing. Hey, I had a great experience in this market. And, uh, but it's just like, you just don't know. I mean, you're not running the deal. I mean, I looked at a deal who knows, maybe they got really, really aggressive on underwriting over the last uh, 24 months, let's say, if I haven't invested in a couple of years there. And so you don't I mean, there's no control I have over it. And I'm not going to review a deal before someone else sees it or something like this, you know, so there's so many different uh, areas that uh, with investing with it, that you just kind of, you just tell people you got to do your own diligence and you got to, you got to really know what, what you're doing and what you're investing into. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think I, I've said this to guys too before. It's like, unfortunately, you know, the WOM factor, the word of mouth factor is not very strong in the investing game. So, you know, when you delight, even when you delight and just exceed expectations for your investors, it the referral rate is much lower because of what you just said, Charles, right? It's that yeah. it's because when it comes to money, man, money is a sensitive topic. And when people don't want to be in a position where they're like you said, hey, I had a really great experience. And even if I had multiple, they're thinking, if I go and tell Joe at the club or whatever, you know, my buddy about these guys, and then it freaking backfires, yeah. I don't want that on me. Right. And so it's just, it's like, this is what makes it hard. This is that friction that I'm speaking of. It's just that it's not like other businesses like, Hey man, I use Slack. I love Slack. I'm going to go tell the whole world about Slack and how awesome Slack is. Right. Like the WOM is high. Like it, it just spreads and people want to tell people about how wonderful it is as a tool or whatever. Um, investing, not so much. Yeah, no, for sure. So what mistakes do you commonly see new or experienced real estate investors make? passive or active investors? Cause you speak to them so often. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think on the sponsor side, it's just not taking some of that. Um, like I said, that conviction stuff, seriously, like, like I, I feel like they, they spend so much time worrying about like, are my, is my pref competitive and is the split competitive and is the, you know, they just get so wrapped up in like the, mm-hmm. the, the economics of the deal or, or whatever. Um, and they overlook the fact that like, okay, yeah, people, they are investments. It is sensitive. It is money. They're going to use their analytical mind to some degree to try to, I mean, you just assume that any quasi sophisticated investor is going to do a bunch of the things we're talking about, but at the end of the day, we all buy emotionally. So Mm -hmm. as long as you've got those things covered, I think that the big thing is just, is, is having conviction, like whatever your strategy is, you got to own it. 
You got to own who you are, what you are, where you are. There's got to be a narrative arc to it. Like we are this, this is why we do this. This is why we're passionate about this. It's the 20 point checklist on how we do what we do. And you got to lean into that and have that, that story, um, you know, out there. Because I think it, once again, I think it, it creates forcing function as well for you to focus, right? So you don't get distracted by things that don't sort of, you know, fit and it allows them to feel more comfortable with, okay, this is what you guys do. You guys, you know, um, cause I always talk to guys who are like, okay, we're in Jersey and we're doing single family flips or whatever, but we're thinking about going to Florida <laughs> and we're thinking about, you know, it's always like every guy I talk to, I feel like they're always talking about there's something better beyond what they're doing. Yeah. And so I think that that's sort of a big mistake or missed opportunity. I mean, on the passive investor side, I think we've already kind of covered, I mean, a bunch of the stuff, but right. um, so crowdfunding is, is something that we, you know, you normally, we don't really normally talk on this show about, but what do you suggest for a potential past investor who's interested in crowdfunding? Like, how do you, how do they effectively evaluate a platform and deals there? Because it's something that I've heard some of them go down. I don't want to mention any names. I've heard a, a couple that have gone down and some that people invest into. Um, what, what does someone, how do you, how does that work? Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's, a, it's, it's a funny thing. I mean, it, it, I think that there's obviously some good platforms out there. I mean, that, you know, that, I mean, I, I think there's some good things out there, right? So how you evaluate a platform, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure of what that is. What, what I think is happening, right. is just that the, it, it still comes down to what we're talking about. It's that understanding that a platform is just a, a middleman between someone that's doing everything we just talked about, right? Yeah. So you still have to peel back all of the layers of the onion. So I guess for me, that's why I kind of get hung up on this where it's like, it, it, I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just that fundamentally, when you get down to the root of what, what, is, the, what is the actual product, that there's someone, there's some operator, there's someone executing the strategy, everything we just talked about all applies. Right. And whoever is the front man or promoter or the middleman platform for the deal, you know, is just kind of like, you know, I don't know how much it matters. Now, some of them cover up these other issues like poor communication or whatever, but I just don't think that it's really about, I mean, in this, I'm biased here because clearly I just feel like the V1 of the real estate crowdfunding is not, I just don't think it's the answer. Mm. Right. And I think that that's the issue, because once you decide that you're going to curate and pick and choose deal, pick and choose specific deals, which they all say, we only take one of the hundred deals we look at. And now you narrow it down to just some small segment of deal flow. There's so many more, there's so many more options out there, right. Than just that. And then these guys are trying to convince you to invest in the deal because they're being compensated for doing it. So um, I I just think that it's at, at the end of the day, what, it's more of like go direct. It's kind of like yeah. just direct to the sponsor is, is really the way that it should be. I feel a lot of those crowdfunding platforms are almost like gambling because you can get in for like a thousand or $5,000. So someone that was going to, you know, you might click here and be like, Oh, I'll invest 5,000 there, 5,000 here, 5,000 there and these different deals. And you're not really doing due diligence, any of them compared to investing 25 or $50,000 into a deal. And you're actually sitting down. Cause when I've invested passively, I mean, I'm spending like a, like, you know, several hours reviewing it and everything like that before I do it. And then I can go back because uh, give my response back to the GP if I'm going to invest or not. But I feel it's more just like a whim. We'll just spread it between these different deals and hopefully something works out. And you really don't know what you're getting yourself into. And be like, oh, I've heard that, um, you know, 
warehouses are great. And I've heard that this is great. And I've, I knew somebody on TV that made money doing this and I'll just invest into them. And you don't really know who you're investing into. And uh, I don't just, that's the thing with crowdfunding is I'd, I'd rather review and, you know, review one deal or multiple deals and be putting more into it. And then kind of, instead of like a little bit into each one, and now we have to look at all these different deals and kind of remember what the hell's going on. I, I think so too. And it's sort of like the Robin hood phenomenon now, right? Like where mm. it's, it's, it's like the Robin hood's turn sort of even stock investing into, it's just like going to the casino. I mean, it's just, people are just doing stuff with no, and I guess that's just it. There's those two different philosophies. Right. And so of course, once you become a, an, a fundamental investor, meaning that you, once you decide that you want to be an investor, to me, that yeah. means that you're going to invest based on fundamentals, not momentum. And, you know, like these other weird things, it's sort of, like you said, that's where it, I think, you know, using the word, it's more like gambling is, is, is appropriate because you're not, you're not doing any analysis. So are you really an investor then? I don't yeah. think so. I think you're a speculator. Right. Um, and it's just, so don't, I guess for me, it's just, that's a false sense of security. If you're trusting this brand on the platform, it's not to say it right. won't work out, but it's just, you really need to understand because it is an investment. Um, just because, you know, Robinhood made it easy to buy Facebook stock or any, you know, or GameStop or whatever, doesn't mean that GameStop's a good company or it's a good stock or even Facebook. I don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's your job. That's what investing is. Yeah. yeah. It's another thing with that too, is like, I'm like, when they came out and people are like, Oh, it's so easy to buy stock. I'm like, it was easy to buy stock before you go to any of these places, $0 uh, go down to your local bank and open up an account with $0 trades and $250 minimum and whatever it is. I mean, pretty much giving it away. Uh, I was like, is it really that? I guess it was, I mean, I have no idea, but um so last, as we're, as we're wrapping up here, what are some factors that you and your team have implemented in your life and business that have led to your success? Yeah, you know, I, I think the number one thing for us has just been like, well, it's two things. So in December, 2012, when we decided to pivot, my business partner, Matt Burke and I, we, you know, we really, we basically laid out North Star, right? Like wh mm -hmm. what, what do we want to do now, right? And so our whole thing was that we wanted a flood of capital to go to worthy real estate entrepreneurs, right? So once again, we, we were deciding to open what amounted to an open-ended, you know, hedge fund style, you know, fund. I mean, that's what we were deciding to do. But we looked beyond that to say, but what, what do we really want to do? Like if we're successful, what will the world look like? And how will we change the world if, if we do this? And it was, well, we want to see the good guys get access to capital. I mean, that's why we started our own fund is that any good guy we met, we wanted to figure out how to funnel capital into their endeavor so that good deals would get done with good people, people that were worthy stewards of that money. So I think that by having that North Star and that's, that's guided us since that day, right? In every decision that we make. And I think that that, you know, I mean, we, we've, we, we figured that would work out, but I mean, now sitting here years later, it really is amazing how when you, when you know what guides you, that allows you to basically say no to a bunch of things and say mm -hmm. yes to the right things. But, it, and I think the second thing that we've done is that we're just grinders, man. Like, because that is our mission and like, that is our vision and this is where we're headed. I mean, we just put our head down and just plow through stuff, mm -hmm. no matter how hard it is. It's like, this is, it's just what we got to do. We got to make this happen. And I mean, everything that we create or have, have come up with is, has none of it's been easy. I mean, it's mm -hmm. super, super hard, but you know, you just keep showing up, man. You just, you just yeah. grind. So 
that's, that's what we do. Focus is power, right? So how can our listeners learn more about you and your company? Yeah, I mean, you can go to verabest.com. Uh, it's probably the, the easiest way. Um, you can email me, lance at verabest.com. And uh, I've got a podcast, so I had, I had you on the show. Uh, it's called Real Estate Risk Report. So you can just search that in or type that in and search for that on all the, the major platforms. But I think that's the, uh, the best way to get a, to get a hold of me. All right. Well, sounds great. I'll put all those links into the show notes. So thank you so much for being on today, Lance. Yeah, my pleasure, Charles. Take care, man. You too. Hi, guys. It's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at ScheduleCharles.com. That's ScheduleCharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.